Roger, great song, great worship time today. Take your Bible and open this morning to the little book of 2 Thessalonians. We did a series through 1 Thessalonians. We're moving to 2 Thessalonians today. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we'll think on the subject, the New Testament perspective on suffering. Let me ask you a profound question this morning. What is the meaning of history? Maybe it's too early in the day for you to deal with a question that profound, right? Before lunchtime? <laughs> what is the meaning of history? People wrestled with that for centuries. There are a lot of cynical ideas about what history really means. Someone said it's like a fly that has ink on his feet, and he wanders around a piece of white paper aimlessly. That's the way human history is. <laughs> well, that's the way it looks sometimes. A liberal theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, said the question of the meaning of history has become a meaningless question. Shakespeare's Macbeth said, Life's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Is that what life is all about? Is that what uh, history is all about? Well, if you leave God out of it, that's true. Apart from God... History is meaningless. Just like that fly wandering around on a piece of white paper with ink on its feet, and it just wanders all over the place. It has no purpose, no direction, no meaning. And more and more people begin to think that now. So you translate that to your personal life. That therefore means that your life really has no meaning. It doesn't really matter what you do in this life because there's nothing beyond. There's no purpose and no direction, no meaning. Well, we as believers see it much differently, don't we? History is not just an endless cycle going over and over. Sometimes it seems to be. We believe that history is headed toward a culmination. It is linear. It is going somewhere. It's going to come to an end with the return of Jesus Christ and judgment, which is going to happen. That's a lot of what the book of 2 Thessalonians is all about. But maybe you're not really concerned about, you know, the meaning of, overall meaning of history. Maybe you're thinking about, what about my personal life? What's the meaning of my personal life? Particularly, what's the meaning of some of the suffering and the trials that we go through? All of us go through trials in life. Nobody gets to this life without a fight, do they? Look out here this morning, and I see every one of you, as look at your faces, I can think of a tragedy or a crisis or a problem or a trial every one of you has been through or is going through now. Well, what's the meaning of that? Well, what's the purpose of it? You know, in the eyes of the world, Suffering is something you should avoid at all costs. I've heard it said that we Christians here in America do not have a very good theology of suffering, except that we don't think we should. <laughs> uh, we don't want to. Well, nobody enjoys the idea of suffering, but to think they really have any theology of suffering. There's some brands of Christianity today that say if you're a Christian, you ought to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. You're always successful all the time. That's not the New Testament picture of Christianity. You look in the Bible, look at the Old Testament, and you look at those people who began to follow God with their whole heart, their life usually didn't get easier, it got more complicated. Think about Moses, for instance. Had a nice, quiet job as a shepherd for some 40 years. Probably enjoyed that, but when God called him to lead people out of Egypt, suddenly his life got very complicated, didn't it? God called Jeremiah to be his prophet, his people, his spokesman, and he preached and preached and preached and preached and preached for some 40 years, and basically nobody listened to him. His life didn't get easier when he started following God's call in his life. You come to the New Testament, 
The New Testament perspective on suffering. Now, Jesus himself said, In the world you have tribulation, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And Paul said, in the book of Acts, one of his sermons, he said, Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of heaven. He also said, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the lot of God's people. It's spelled out there for us. But the trials we go through are not without meaning, not without purpose. If you're going through something and you, you think there's just no meaning, no purpose at all to it, that's when it's particularly difficult. But here's a New Testament perspective on suffering. The trials and afflictions of this life are the way that God makes us into the image of Christ. He's making us Christ-like through those times. It's how God grows us. I think we'd all agree that uh, those tough times that we go through in life, that's the times when we really grow. We don't grow when things are, are simple. When things are easy, that's not when we grow. We grow through the tough times. You don't see it till afterwards many times. You don't see it when you're in the middle of a trial, but afterwards you can look back and you see how God led you through that and you grew through that. That's the New Testament perspective. We have aerobic exercise. The idea behind aerobic exercise is you raise your heart rate, right? Your heart is basically a muscle. So when you put stress on your heart, you raise the heart rate. You make it stronger. You run, you walk, you bicycle, you swim. Those things which increase the heart rate actually make it stronger. So, that's what testing times do. They grow our faith. And a specific thing he's going to talk about here is persecution, but also the same thing applies to all problems or afflictions or trials that we face in life. Now, a little bit of background of this book. Three particular groups which were causing a problem in Thessalonica. This book was written... Uh, pretty quickly after the first book, 1 Thessalonians, written pretty quickly, there are three particular people who are causing problems. First of all, are those who are the persecutors. These people are being persecuted. Paul focuses on this in chapter 1. Now, if you think back to Acts chapter 17, which tells about the founding of the church at Thessalonica, it was born in persecution. And that was continuing. That was continuing. What he's going to tell us in chapter 1 is there's going to come a day Christ is going to come back. There'll be a day of judgment. Those who have been afflicted, those who have been persecuted will find relief, but destruction will come upon those who have been doing the persecuting. So, there were the persecutors. Secondly, there were false teachers. We'll get into chapter 2, and something had disturbed these people. Either a letter uh, claiming to have been from Paul, or a message that claimed to have been from Paul, that had somehow shaken up the people in regards to the second coming of Christ, telling them that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul's going to write in chapter 2 about two things that have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. Then a third group that was causing problems there at Thessalonica were those who were just idle. Those who had just quit working. Some people had uh, really gotten, you know, gotten rapture fever. They were so convinced that Christ was going to come back very, 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 very soon that they were just quitting, quitting their jobs, becoming irresponsible people, and expecting everybody else to provide for them. The idle people. And in chapter 3, he addresses that. Paul addresses that, telling the people, in the meantime, until Christ does come back, you're to be responsible people. Live in a responsible way. Live in a responsible way. When we look today at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, I invite you to stand with me as we look today at the New Testament perspective on uh, suffering. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you 
peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Let's join together in prayer. Father, increase our knowledge today, increase our understanding of the trials in life and, and what you do through those times of trial, how you grow us through those trials. We give you thanks and praise, most of all for your son Jesus, who came and died on the cross for us. We give you honor and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A church can take a pride in a lot of different things. They can take pride in a large membership or big beautiful facilities or a lot of money or different ministries or whatever. And those things are fine, but there are things that are actually more important than that. More important than that. We're going to look today in these verses at three things that ought to characterize us as God's people. All these three are intertwined, and they all have something to say about the New Testament perspective on suffering. So look at verse 3. The first thing that ought to characterize us as the people of God is a growing faith in God. A growing faith. It says your faith is greatly enlarged, meaning literally it's increased beyond measure, grown beyond what was expected. They've grown not only despite the persecution, but because of the persecution that was going on, their faith was growing. Their faith was increasing. It wasn't static. It was growing. <coughs> Persecution reveals false faith. Persecution reveals false faith. Remember the parable Jesus told about the sower and the soils? guy who was spreading the seed and different types of soil out there. The seed was falling on different types of soil. So it fell on rocky soil, and because it couldn't send down any roots, you know, it had no root in itself, withered away, Jesus said that represents people who respond enthusiastically at first, but they don't have any deep roots. So when persecution or affliction becomes because, comes because of the Word, they drift away. Some people start off enthusiastically. They start off great, but they're not rooted, so they talk about their faith. But what happens when their faith really gets tested? What happens when it really gets tested? Have an old rickety bridge. The bridge is just sitting there. It's unsafe, it's dangerous. You don't know that until somebody tries to walk across it. <laughs> that reveals how faulty it really is. Some people's faith can be like that, according to Jesus. Now, at the Last Supper, Jesus said one time turned to Peter, addressed him as Simon. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And I pray for you that your faith will not fail. And you know what happened to Peter? He denied Jesus. Peter failed, but his faith did not fail. He was restored. He came back. His faith didn't fail. He stumbled and fell momentarily, but his faith did not fail. I think we're entering days here in America where the church is going to be tested. It's already being tested in some ways. I think that's going to increase as time goes on. Our faith is going to be tested. There's going to be a sifting that's going to go on in this country that reveal true faith from false faith. It will be interesting. It will separate us out. It will separate us out. J 
James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James writes this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it joy when trials come your way, because it allows you to develop perseverance. And then the Apostle Paul says almost the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Tribulation brings perseverance brings staying power. The perseverance leads to character. You develop character. The character leads to hope. And it's a hope that will never turn out to be a disappointment. It will never turn out to be an illusion. So we grow through the trials. We grow through the trials. Romans chapter 8 ends this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you get all that? What's Paul saying? Nothing, not nowhere, not know how, can ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The worst thing that can come to you in this life will never separate you from the love of God. And death doesn't separate you from it. That just brings you into fellowship with Him. So nothing will separate us. Nothing will separate us. Those things that come can help strengthen our faith. So the Thessalonians were increasing in faith in spite of the persecution, actually because of it. They were growing because of it. It showed the genuineness of their conversion. So, growing faith. Second thing of this that ought to characterize us, that characterize these people, in verse 3, also an increasing love for one another. Increasing love for one another. And I don't mean just warm, fuzzy feeling towards somebody. I'm talking about agape, that great word, which means a selfless kind of giving that seeks the highest good of someone else and sacrifices for someone else. That, that kind of agape, that kind of agape. For the church at Thessalonica, one of the things that was helping them get through the trials was the love they had for one another. The love they had for one another. It was a family. If your family's going through a trial, you go through a tragedy or something, a loss of somebody in the family or some kind of tragedy strikes your family, the love you have for one another is one of the strongest things to get you through that. So for these Thessalonians, one of the things that was getting them through the persecution was the love they have for one another. New commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you should love me as I have loved you. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. That shows the world that we truly are his disciples. Just like faith grows, love also grows. Love also grows. Whatever else you might have in a church, you can have, you know, a lot of money, a lot of facilities, a big membership, a lot of things going on. But if you don't have love for one another... It's all without meaning. 
It's all meaningless. That's why it's so important. That's why it's said over and over that we ought to love one another. The book of 1 John is really about assurance. How can a person truly know that they're a believer? And uh, John gives us these tests. It's basically three tests that repeat over and over in the book of 1 John. First of all, what do you confess about Jesus Christ? Do you confess that Jesus Christ is God come in the human flesh? Secondly, do you live an increasingly righteous life? Not a perfect life, but I mean an increasingly righteous life. Is that the direction that your life is going in? An increasingly righteous life. And then thirdly, do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? Is there something that pulls you toward the people of God and the body of Christ? Over and over in the New Testament, increasing faith, increasing love for one another, those are essentials in the body of Christ. But a third thing that characterized these Thessalonians was this, a steadfast perseverance in the face of trials. It ought to characterize us too, a steadfast perseverance in the face of trials. They were a great example to other church, Paul, uh, churches. Paul boasted about what God had done in this church at Thessalonica. He wasn't bragging about them, he was bragging about God, really, because it's what God had done in their midst. Perseverance. It's the Greek word, hupamone. Hupamone, it's a great word. It's a great word. Some translations uh, translate it patience. Uh, that, that's not really a strong enough word to convey the meaning. Perseverance is much better. But literally it means to stay under a burden. You stay under a burden and you don't give up and you do it with a blazing sense of hope. Not just a sense of resignation like, oh well, whatever. <laughs> it's not that. And some people approach life that way when hard times come. Oh well, whatever. No, this is coming through. It's staying under the load and you have a sense of hope on the other side. That God has given you hope. That God has given you hope. John R.W. Scott, one of my favorite writers, talks about three images in Scripture of how God uses suffering to make us more Christ-like. The first image is of a father disciplining a child. A father disciplines a child. He does it for the good of that child. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that and says that, uh, that uh, just like a father disciplines his children, God disciplines us. We as believers will never experience the wrath of God, but we do experience the discipline of God, don't we? Just like a loving father would discipline his children. Discipline is no fun to the person going through it, but afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It has a goal. So a parent disciplines a child, he's got a goal for that child. He wants to grow that child, right? God does the same thing in disciplining us. He's like that father who disciplines a child. Second picture is of a, a metal worker refining silver and gold. You put it in the fire, you heat it up. Why? To get the impurities out. So that it's pure. So that it's now pure. Pure metal. Third image is a gardener pruning a vine. When you prune something, you cut back unproductive branches. It might look like you're harming it, but in the end, you're increasing the production. So those three images, those three images, a father disciplines a child. A metal worker purifies the metal. He heats it up to purify it, and a gardener prunes his vine. God's doing all three of those things in us 
when we go through sufferings and trials. My observation over the years, it seems to me that some of the godliest people I've ever known have been people who have gone through some of the biggest trials. Have you observed that too? That's been my observation. I used to wonder about that. When I was younger as a believer, I thought, why do those poor people have to suffer so much? They're such good people. They're such godly people. But then I thought, I'm thinking about this backwards. Maybe that's why they're such godly people. Because of what they've been through. That's what has made them such godly people. Listen to some of these quotations about suffering and about uh, what it does. First of all, Paul Turnier said this. I've seen people change through suffering. Not that suffering is the cause of growth, but it is the occasion for growth. So it's not so much suffering which matures people as the way they react to suffering. One could also say it's not suffering which makes a person grow, but that one does not grow without suffering. And John R.W. Stott says this. There's almost an indefinable something about people who have suffered. They have a fragrance which others lack. They exhibit the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I sometimes wonder if the real test of our hunger for holiness is our willingness to experience any degree of suffering if only thereby God will make us holy. Wow. You desire holiness and righteousness so much that if it means you go through suffering to become more Christ-like, you wouldn't do that. You desire it that much. You desire it that much. What powerful statements. So, suffering and glory, tribulation and the kingdom are inseparable. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Because God was allowing them to suffer at Thessalonica, they could know God was preparing them for glory. So we look at suffering the wrong way. We look at it as something, something to be avoided. But New Testament perspective is it prepares you for glory to follow. You're being prepared for glory. It's not a sign God has forsaken you when you suffer. It's a sign He's with you. Guess what God does in the life of a believer? It's not just, just the suffering, just the fact that you're suffering, but that faith, love, and perseverance grow. Through it. Faith, love, and perseverance grow through it. Philippians chapter 1. Turn back just a few pages in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. These verses help explain a little bit of what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 1. Here's what he writes in Philippians Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Remember what he said in verse 28? In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them and of salvation for you. What he's saying there is, is when people attack you for your faith, if they attack you for your faith, it's a lost cause for them. 
They've already lost and you've already won. By the mere fact that you're being attacked for your faith, that right there is a victory for you and a loss for them. doesn't look that way now, but it's true. That's what he's saying to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. That's what he's really saying to them. He says, this is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are indeed suffering. Being persecuted for the faith is not a defeat for you. It's actually a victory for you. Then he'll go on, and this is, this is for another sermon, verses 6 through 10. He says, a day is coming. Christ is going to return. He's going to give relief to those who have been persecuted. Destruction to those who are doing the persecuting. So what's the New Testament perspective on suffering? The great old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Remember that song? One of the verses says it so well, sums it up pretty well. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame will not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's a profound verse. That's a profound verse. Trials come, but my grace will be your supply the flame won't hurt you. It won't destroy you. It'll purify you. It'll pur purify you. All our trials, whether it's being persecuted for the faith or just the, just the sufferings of life, the stuff of life, it's helping to purify us, to prepare us for glory. Of course, Jesus is our perfect example. Two passages from the book of Hebrews. He Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, for it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus, through suffering. Then Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Well, Jesus was never imperfect, never disobedient. So, so what does that mean? Well, it means that that his obedience was brought to full maturity through the things that he suffered. His obedience was on full display through the things that he suffered. So he was brought to completion through the things that, that he suffered. His sufferings were the testing ground in which his obedience was shown to be full grown and to be mature. That was true for Jesus. It's also true for us. God matures us. And our obedience is shown through the things that we suffer. Trials are the testing ground. It's the testing ground where your obedience comes to maturity as you follow Jesus. Your know, life is tough. Everybody knows that. How do we get through? How do we get through? Well, New Testament perspective is so different from what the world would tell us about suffering and trials. God's doing a work in you through those times. Let God mature you. Let God grow you through those experiences. Maybe here today, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is the one who was perfectly obedient to God, sacrificing himself on the cross for your sins. And he offers himself to you if you will trust him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe there are other needs here today. Maybe you need to come to the altar and pray about something going on in your life right now. 
Like I said, every one of you sitting out there, you've been through something or you're going through something now. You know? They say that to everybody, you're either going into a time of trial, you're in a time of trial, or you just got through a time of trial. Right? That's true for every one of us. So whatever it is God says to you in this time of commitment, time of invitation, you respond as He would have you to respond. Let's stand together after a word of prayer. We will offer our psalm this morning. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Father, we do thank You so much for Jesus Christ, the One who died for us, the One who was perfectly obedient to You. We pray, Father, that uh, in these moments of invitation, moments of commitment, that You would speak to us, Father. There are those who need to respond in some public way, Lord. I pray they do so without hesitation. This is your time to speak to us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.